Good morning, afternoon, whatever it is, everyone. This is Ryan Vandehei, the producer. We had an impromptu episode just fall into our lap when we had the commanders on the initial episode. Everyone just started talking about MOI and uh, why they want to fly, why they why they love teaching, and when you get a billion IP hours in a room together and people that are really passionate things just kind of take off. I asked an initial question, which was, what IP that you had when you were when you were growing up as a young pilot, what IP made you want to be an instructor? And that kind of spurred some of the discussions. And you'll hear, hear me jump in and ask a couple questions here and there, guide the conversation. But for the most part, this was just some guys sitting around a table talking and uh, I just hit record on him partway through. So... We hope you enjoy this special podcast episode, Flight Suit Friday, talking about MOI. So Bob Mikowski was an IP in, in uh, Atlantic City when I was there, and uh, he's an Army DCA, 5,000, 6,000-hour guy, and uh, he could fly the heck out of the 65. He'd been multiple tours. You know, he didn't uh, no staff tours. I don't probably didn't have any grad school, but that guy could fly. And he was a challenging IP. I mean, I definitely there was a few check rides that I did not want to do with him. Um, but uh, but I learned a lot from him. And um, you know, just the way he approached training. You know, you could tell he loved it. And you could tell he loved flying. Um, that, that's you know, I would say one of the one of the best IPs I think I had as a first tour. You know, pilot. And another one, completely different, was uh, Commander Andy Dutton. And, uh, you know, he had a completely different reputation. Um, and, and, you know, the thing I liked about Andy is I, I would say, hey, can I try this? And he'd be like, yeah. I mean, he, he, he you know, as long, I mean, he, yeah, I, I will let you try it. You know what I mean? He let me actually just gave me the rope and said, yeah, I'm going to try this on this next ILS. And, yeah, I'll give it a shot. So I always liked flying with him, too, because I could pretty much do anything. And also it wasn't immorally illegal. And sometimes even if those were the case, it was still okay. So, yeah, um, I, th- I think – I always, if I look back to the guys that I really enjoyed flying with, I think a lot of times it was, um, they were almost, uh, they would put those challenges in front of you, but it wasn't ever laid out like, okay, I'm going to challenge you. You know, it was just on a regular flight, maybe not that upgrade flight, but there'd be some scenario-based stuff or there'd be, a, you know, they'd, they'd throw you in the seat, um, you know, maybe ahead of when you thought you were ready for it or even like that. But it was just, it was, it was almost this disguising of the challenge, you know, so that, that um, so that you, they were showing you that you were ready before you, you know, so I thought you were in syllabus or you thought you were going to be up for this. And I think that was uh, one of the things that, that I enjoyed the most. And then also just guys that had a, had a passion to teach, you know, and, and really kind of really get you to the finish line as far as, as far as what that looks like to, to be, to be um, managing those missions yourself. And they just had different ways of doing it. But yeah, I think the guys, you, you guys, we've all had that IP that just loved, loved to teach and, wanted to spend that extra time with you. And I think those are the things that, uh, that just go, go miles. Yeah. I really enjoyed, uh, I think Dan Howe was one of my, my favorite ones. He did a really good job, showed up to Travers after my first or second year there. And, uh, he kind of was very quiet. So maybe the opposite of myself, but as a uh, first pilot trying to make AC, it was awesome. Cause he's a pretty quiet guy and he kind of lets you do your thing. So you'd be rather than asking for the rope or, or whatever in commander Sam Warren's uh, example, he would let you just 
go try stuff like, Hey, I think I'm going to do this. And you'd be like, Hey, it's your flight to manage, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll keep us out of trouble. And I'll say no, if it's not a good idea. So it was really neat. He kind of lets you just like run the show. Um, and it, it, we do some scenario based stuff and some, some pattern stuff, but it was neat to have a, a seasoned aviator, same thing, multiple thousand hour DCA, um, just sitting there next to you, managing you, managing the flight. So it was great. Yeah, for me, the uh, IPs that would continue to teach out of the cockpit too, and and you're sitting in the wardroom or you're in the office, and said IP comes in and says, "Hey, what would you do if you were in the middle of this case, and then you got a you know main gearbox chip, and you got the swimmer halfway down, and you're about to pick somebody out of the water? What are you gonna do?" And uh, that that was really helpful for me because I just sit there and don't really think about the future sometimes, and and it's good to have somebody to force that down on on you and and like keep you keep you thinking, keep you on your toes. I think it was nice in ops as, as ops in Houston to have a quiver full of IPs that all had a little different personality. And so I had my Jeremy Loeb, who's like the textbook, perfect IP. He's really sharp, loves teaching, loves flying, um, scores a hundred on every single stand test he's ever taken. And then I have another IP, uh, Scott Kimball, who's totally different. You know, he can fly the heck out of the plane. He, he asked those tough questions. He, he, the off the wall scenarios, he would give this the flight. He called it a hell flight, you know, before someone's about to go in the syllabus and he would break them down on this flight just to show them what point they were going to break down on losing the bubble basically. And again, I, it's not my style, but he did it so that they could feel I'm about to break. This is the feeling you need to be aware of when you're on a SAR case and you're getting to this point before it happens. You know, mm. um, he couldn't ever pass more than probably a 90 on any closed book test. But it was okay because, again, what he brought to the to the FEB was totally different than what Jeremy brought, you know. So it was great to have, you know, all different, you know, skill sets on the FEB. And I think absolutely there is a far, far different skill set uh, from being an instructor pilot versus that flight examiner. And and uh, some guys some guys really excel in that FE role um, and and do great with it. I get it's one I've always I've always struggled with. I I want I want to step in and, and stop and help and and really I talk way more than than I should uh, from the I, I have a more difficult time shedding the IP and putting on the FE hat. And but like you said, certain guys have those, those great skill sets in both of those, both those arenas and just employing them in that regard is, and that's, that's where, that's where, if you've got both of those to choose from, that's when you're doing really well. And it, it, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you, you reminded me of like a N2 Ian Neville, Neil, he was like the, that idea personified the quietest guy on the check ride, did a bunch of uh, check rides on him, a couple of sand visits and, uh, just didn't feel like a check ride. The guy's just next to you, uh, riding along, ask a couple questions, um, but really, yeah, just just there. Like I think exemplified like the uh, FE role. Awesome. So I asked you guys, what IP made you want to be an IP? The next question I've got is, uh, we're revamping MOI, right? Making it online, pushing it out to the fleet, makes it a little bit impersonal, but there's a lot of good information on there to make add a little bit of a personal touch. What would be something that you guys want new IPs to take away? Like what is something if you had distill it down to one or two lessons learned or what you want new guys to bring to the IP for the fleet? I, I know for me, I think Ben hit the nail on the head with passion. I feel like to have a passion about what we do, you know, is going to spill over, you know? And, and like you said, when you flew with Ian, you know, he didn't make it like a check ride. You know, there are times where, yeah, people get people get nervous anyway. They get check rideitis, and to be aware of that and sensitive, and everybody performs differently under stress. Um, I feel like uh, to make a check ride fun, you know, like where we can go have a good time giving a check ride. I gave uh, Derek Thorsrud his last check ride in the Coast Guard yesterday. We had a good time. He nailed it, no problems. You know, which makes it easy on the on the grade sheet, but. 
Um, you know, it's just like, Hey, I can go validate that. You know how to do this. You know what I mean? If we can keep the stress low, you're going to perform well. We're going to have a good time. Maybe even tell some jokes, tell some stories. You're going to teach me something. So I, I would say just be teachable because you know, Ben could fail me on a check, ride. He can give me a ready room down right now on something. I don't know, you know, probably an EP because I've, you know, it's all echo EPs. Now they're all non boldface. So, um, you know, or, or systems knowledge stuff. And we, we, any of us could do that and sharpshoot somebody, but, uh, you know, what can I learn as an IP from my student? I guarantee I'm going to learn something. I'll just say that right off the bat is be humble and say, hey, what, what, you know, continue to learn, learn from your students and even say that, like, I don't need to have this armor of like, I'm perfect. I know everything. I'm a regular person. I, there's definitely something I don't know. I'm going to, and I start all my echo briefs now with, I'm going to make a mistake on something on this flight. It's not intentional. It's just probably going to happen. And so it, it arms the crew with looking for that and being able to call me out. And sometimes it's the very first checklist step, which helps because it's like, well, man, he really started out or started out <laughs> strong. <laughs> yeah. So I, I say it a lot to, I think uh, a lot of the new folks in the, the division, uh, as like, I don't know, kind of the division grandpa right now on year seven. But, uh, the, my whole goal and focus at work is just to keep my friends safe. You know, like, the goal of today's event is to keep you safe and make sure when you go fly with my friends, uh, you keep them safe too. So as long as you keep it in perspective, you know, as much as we are quizzing uh, that pre-fight walk around numbers for all the bottle pressures um, or the specific bold pace, uh, bold face steps, uh, it's it's really more important to keep it in focus. Like the point of of our job is to make everybody safer. So if if you're passionate about making everyone safer, flies uh, smarter, more efficient, then yeah, th that's on brand. That's that's what we're looking for. I think uh, the other the other part of it is um, is to understand that you know one even though you could give someone a ready room down like you know, you know don't be a jerk you know that was uh, um, one of the one of the taglines for for um, that that again that guy named Scott McFarland was the the first ops boss that uh, that I had and probably you had too Scott and we all want to be ops bosses because of that guy and and he would if someone put in their IP letter um, he would he would take it and he'd say they want to be an IP. He would take that and he would walk down and he would find all the co-pilots and he'd say, how do you like flying with Scott Sanborn? And that's because, again, if, if Scott Sanborn's a jerk to the co-pilots at the unit, then we know we don't need to give him an IP call. So, again, that just that, that passion and that, that, that just respect to treat people with, uh, regardless, of, regardless of that, of that uh, position, means the world. Uh, and that's, uh, that, that became his first stop. And, again, one of the reasons we all loved him for sure. But beyond that, too, is to, is to not feel like you have to have all the answers either. Because just because you're anybody that wants to be an IP or an IP, they're, they're smart folks, but no way to think that you have all the answers. And again, I, I love, um, you know, I'm looking across the, I'm looking around the table. All of us came to Mobile second tour, you know. And uh, when you come here second tour, you're an IP for the first time. And, and to, you rapidly find out that there, you have kind of one, maybe one and a half ways of teaching certain concepts. And when the student doesn't get that, you're kind of, out of Schlitz. Uh, and so what you, what you do, which is a, an amazing luxury, you come back and you find 25 of your best friends and you ask them how they teach this. And, uh, and you get 25 different ways to do it. 20, yeah. And there's 25, there are. And and to that point, I, I took a Dayland student out on my first Dayland on wings. We were doing AFCS off and, and he was doing well, but the AFCS off was just giving him a hard time. And, and the crosswinds weren't perfect. I didn't, uh, didn't have it where I really wanted it, but he was struggling and again, I just pushed on it more than I should, and he was struggling. He said, "I just don't think I can do this." And at that point, like the MOI bell goes off and it says, "Ah, stop pushing. We'll do this tomorrow." Mm -hmm. And then I came back though, and I was I was talking to Jason Gelfin, and I said, "Hey, man, I, I I tried this, I tried that. You know, um, um, uh, you know, what what am I missing?" And while I'm explaining that, Brian Emmiston, who just heard the conversation, like comes over and he says, "Where were his feet?" I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Where his heels on the floor?" 
or was he flying with his feet in the air? And he says, I, I bet you if you go back and look tomorrow, he flies with his feet in the air and not with his heels on the floor, and, he's, and that's why he's having so much struggle. Wow. So I was like, sweet, one. And then this is the 25-year ways. And Jason Gelfand, of course, looks at me in his, in his uh, absolute Jason Gelfand monotone deadpan and just says, I got one for you, bro. He says, uh, you seen Bob Ross? I was like, yeah, I, I know Bob Ross. He says, you got to put some Bob Ross in him. I said, uh, he said, you just got to, you got to, you got to, you got to relax. You got, you got to make him relax. And he says, just literally just start doing that. Just, just, you got to fly FCS off like Bob Ross paints. Just a little Prussian blue, a little titanium white, just, just beautiful clouds. Look at, look at those happy trees. No mistakes. And then he said, and then just segue, just, 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 uh, just fly like that. A little cyclic, a little collective, little pressure on the pedals, little counter pressure, move that hover scan out. No mistakes, no mistakes. And it just it the kid the kid laughs they all laugh when you do that so uh, and again if you've been on wing this is this you're going back over trodden ground with me on this but it relaxes you 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 loosen up you laugh and they do they can hear you and I'm again that's just one of those things that like me just trying to say move your hover scan out you know don't you know you know it just yeah just taking Jason Gelfand's technique and, and applying it again this is as an IP if you don't have the answer if the student says I don't get it don't just press into that always just sometimes they back off go go get a better technique or a different one and try to because we all learn in different ways so there's just so so many smart ips out there in the fleet just go just go find one and ask them how they teach it and again they'll be if they're a true ip they'll be glad to tell you you know and the other thing you talked about is you don't want to be a jerk when you give someone a ready room down you can totally be a nice person and still give them a ready room down and i think that's the other thing we need to remember and, and the counter of that is being honest with people and giving them honest feedback and it's not easy to do it's not easy to to tell people hey that really wasn't very good but we owe that as ips we owe that to people especially as fes to say hey i'm holding up a mirror you know and and maybe you just say hey how do you think that went you know and most people know yeah that wasn't very good the the ready room downs that i've given most pilots i'd say hey hey do you think we should go flying right now and they said no probably not and i'm like yep good answer <laughs> you know um but uh you know, you can still, again, give the feedback because that's what we need. You know, it doesn't have to be like, you know, as I tell all you guys, you know, like I want you to be very passionate instructor pilots. I want you to be impassionate and examiners. You know, when you're holding people accountable, don't let the emotion creep in. Don't, you know, don't get mad at them for not doing well. You know, just tell them, hey, that wasn't good. And we need to, we need, we need to account for that. You need to know that that's not the standard uh, so that we can get you to the standard, you know? Yeah, just speaking from the perspective of that second tour, Mobile IP, I'm in my second year now, and I've made a lot of mistakes along the way because I'm learning how to be an IP, and especially when you make those mistakes with your student, uh, you know, you say something wrong, and you catch it, you know, two hours after the flight, and you're like, geez, I, did, I told him something completely wrong. Follow up on that, you know, make that phone call, that shoot that text, that email, just so that, you know, it might be embarrassing for you because you probably should or you hope you think that you should know that that information, um, but it, it's really helpful and, and especially giving them good, honest feedback and keeping them uh, moving forward. I found that that that's been a really good thing for me to to uh, take in and and just being humble too and and that continuous learning. I mean, I have all of the tricks that I have learned from Commander Sanborn, Commander Walton, Shakes, Ryan Vandehei. You know, I don't have any new tricks. No, no IP I really think has new tricks. And if you're trying a new trick, you're probably going to do something wrong with the helicopter at that point. But yeah, I think that's important, just keeping that feedback loop. And in full transparency too, I think is, you know, as, as and in Houston, we had a great culture of transparency. We would get together every week and we would share around the table. You know, we'd talk about a SAR case or a mishap or, hey, some dumb thing I did this last week. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd vote on who got it, name on the Elvis, you know. And, and as a division, we do the same thing. I mean, it's every two weeks, but... 
we try to go around and share those stories in transparency. And I think for culture, uh, Ben recommended a great book to me. And, you know, I think, you know, you look at the Navy SEALs, why are they successful at their mission? They sit down and they have those conversations in full transparency and say, hey, that mission sucked. You know, I didn't do this right. You didn't do that right. And they talk that out. And I think, you know, for a unit to be successful and to have that culture is to admit those, you know. So when a crew came back and did something, you know, they made a mistake or did something dumb, the first thing I would ask them is have them sit on the couch. I never got mad at them because I want them to come tell me their stories is to say, please share that at pilot training. I want you to share that mistake so that we all can learn from what happened to you and not make the same mistake next week. And a negative culture is like, I'm going to get in trouble. They don't want to do that. They want to just keep that secret you know, safe. And then, then the next mishap crew isn't so lucky, you know, so. And that culture only works as well as, and again, Scott's just a great example of that is that like, he wanted the division to do that. So he started with that. Like he, he says, here's the dumb thing I did. And as ops, you did that. And and it certainly, there's plenty of dumb things that I do. So it's easy. Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But, but again, if you, if you, if you say, Hey, anybody, you know, have something for the Velvet Elvis, it, it, there are certain units if the leadership doesn't take the take the lead and offer the first one or two or or at least say, hey, here's something I did, I wish I would have done better, to count on that first or AC to be the first one to Roger up, it just it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's a culture that has to be. There's certain things that can happen organically. That one can't. That one has to be led by by third and fourth tour uh, flyers to say, here's what I did and and, and it was silly and, and here's what I should have done differently. And in the same breath, um, when you're when you're doing that, when you're talking about uh, that, I I need guys to come to me because I want them. I want us to learn. Sidney Decker's a, a guy that talks about human error quite a bit, and he talks about that in the Just Culture uh, hat with the Safety World. And essentially, when something happens, a mishap or something unfortunate happens, he he has uh, shown that you can either punish or you can learn, but you can't do both. And so, as a leader, you have to make that decision on what we're going to do with this mishap. In the just culture, at times, you have to say, "Yep, this is this is a punishment, right? Like these guys made made a, did a, had a violation. It was absolutely against what we're supposed to do." And you do have to hold people accountable. But I think the majority of the time, especially in aviation, we we do a good job of choosing to learn from that, so that we continue to have people come to us. But it becomes a binary decision when you get into the stuff like that, though. We had a crew in uh, Port Angeles. It was two FPs that came back and they hit the tail stinger doing a tail rotor. And I was like, yeah, you guys can't do tail rotors, you know? And they're like, no, seriously? And I'm like, yeah, it says it right here. <laughs> and dash one. And, uh, and of course, we had to brief that up to the CEO, you know, and the response was, you know, what do we do? Do we take their, you know, do we take her, you know, aircraft or take her, you know, first pilot away, you know, and then punish her for a while? And I was like, no, please don't do that. Because she was willing to tell this story right now and share this. But if we make it a punitive thing, right? It wasn't like she knew, hey, I can't do tail rotors. Let's do it anyway. Oh crap! We hit the stinger. Oh crap! We now we you know hope they don't find out. It was like truly they just it, it was just ignorance. They just didn't know, you know. And bad on us for not making sure. That I guess they knew that before they went on their first pilot, you know, PIC flight. But uh, which became obviously you know we we then added that to the things we sat them down and talked to them about. But uh, but now it became a you know story that now she can share and say, hey, this happened to me. Don't let it happen to you. You know, by the way, you can't do tail rotors when you're a first pilot. So. Yeah, and you can guarantee that both of those pilots and all the co-pilots in the wardroom, they, they read 3710 themselves, probably on top of the training you guys mm-hmm. uh, administered. No one's making that same mistake again. Right. But again, that lesson is lost if we punish, and then that person never wants to tell that story, you know? So not to put you guys on the spot, but when I first showed up here, Commander Wallen, you said uh, you're an ATC Mobile IP now, so you're automatically tall, dark, handsome, and greatest mustache around. But uh, could you guys give us some examples? Not asking you to dime yourself out on uh, while being recorded too bad, but uh, what are some things that you learned as an IP, as a junior IP, anything that you 
kind of those little dumb moments or just a learning point for you guys? I know I've had plenty, uh, especially flying around with uh, some of the T-Core students a couple of times where I let situations get away from me and I've learned a lot. So is there anything that you guys want to break the, the pedal still down a little bit of the ATC IP and some of the lessons learned so the fleet can learn from us? I mean, I, I make mistakes all the time. And, uh, you know, the students are generally very similar. You know, some of them are you know, really, really good and kind of lure you to sleep at times. Like, oh, this person, I don't have to guard the controls as much. They're doing awesome. Um, but, uh, I mean, a couple of times I got into Yuli with students. And, uh, you know, I used to think, oh, I'm better than Yuli. I mean, it's all in the dash one. This is just bad piloting. And then you let the student decide to do a left-hand pedal turn with a 15-knot crosswind, you know, AFCS off. And uh, next thing you know, you're swapping ends faster than you can think about it. And it's like, yep, yep, this is exactly why this is written, exactly like this. And I let myself get talked into it, you know. Uh, I had plenty of opportunity to stop the student and say, let's not do a left-hand pedal turn right now. And uh, and I let it happen to me. So that's just one. I mean, I got, yeah. I got buckets of examples. Yeah, I don't think we got quite enough audio on here to, to cover it all. I, I vividly remember I was a junior IP and uh, – and I forget the event, but it was, um, it was, ceilings were like, they were like 1,100 foot ceilings and three miles of is. And so um, maybe the event was to do instrument approaches or was, maybe I was going to file IFR. Maybe I thought that was the best way to get over somewhere. So I had a brand new T-Core student and we were going to get from here, maybe over to Keys or go do pattern work or something like that. And so I was like, yeah, we got this, There's nothing to it. And um, we take off, we're climbing up on our approach clearance. We go in the clouds. Again, I had not prepped the student with what modes I wanted. I just treated him like a qualified co-pilot in the fleet. And we went in the clouds and I said, hey, I'll take a heading select an IAS, at which point student was not quite ready to kind of give me those shut down. Yeah, and so now I went from a VMC scan to an IMC scan and I'm just like taking every brain cell I've got to keep the aircraft upright with my new scan that, that I did not prep myself for and completely, completely un- overestimated my abilities and those abilities of the student on what, again, are, were VFR conditions, but again, just went into it without building any sort of plan, just for, took way, way too casually, uh, and again, made a very exciting uh, moment happen for the, for the both of us, for the student and for me, and again, that now, now, we've wasted, now we've wasted brain cells and energy and adrenaline on that when we had a whole event ahead of us there too. So yeah, absolutely, mm. um, really kind of just thinking, thinking that, uh, that, a thousand, that a thousand feet ceilings you know, can't kill you, you know? Yeah, I, that's a great lead-in for me. I just as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, doing a right seat skills upgrade in Port Angeles, and I I probably have a little bit of a reputation with being comfortable in crappy weather. I think it was Ben that did my stand check in Port Angeles. We were probably I don't know two or three hundred foot ceilings, and we had a waiver to fly. And I remember the whole time you were looking at the seat like the clouds, like they were going to kill us. And I'm like, what's your problem, man? This is like normal ops out here in PA. And you're just like, I can tell you're really comfortable in bad weather. But I became too comfortable, and we had a waiver like Humboldt did at the time to be able to depart. Um, Special VFR with basically down to a quarter mile for the fog. As long as you had an alternate that was, you know, kind of met the certain requirements, you could depart for training um, because of the, all we had to get back into PA was an NDB that got you to 600 feet in one mile. So um, otherwise you would never fly in the summertime. So I took a guy out. Again, my, my job as an IP is to create an environment that allows him to get good training, you know. And, and what I did was I created an environment that ended up being a high-risk event for the two of us. And the fog bank, you know, was a lot closer than I realized. And, um, and I got comfortable. You know, I, was, I thought I was doing my due diligence. I could see the horizon. I could see the shore lights. Uh, I kept flipping the goggles up and down to see, hey, you know, I feel like I'm monitoring this appropriately. But what I was doing was just being really cool with high risk in the sense that the fog bank was in a distance away that I didn't know. 
Uh, but when it when it came upon us, now we were uh, we we're in out of control flight, you know. And the only thing that probably kept us out of the water was Havog. And um, and again, I had I was so comfortable managing that, you know, high level of vigilance to keep an eye on where the fog was, that uh, that I wasn't realizing that my goal is not to hang out here in high risk; it's to get to lower risk. And that is, let's relocate. And I did that once. We moved back about you know a couple miles to get away from the fog bank. I thought that was sufficient, but again, like ORM, I needed to monitor that. And when the pilot on his second hoist said, "I feel like I'm in a I'm in a snow globe," I should have said, "Hey, all right, we got a problem." And I it was just too little, too late. I grabbed the controls, I looked down, and now I'm in the snow globe, and I could see nothing. I flipped my goggles down. I was like inside a ping pong ball, and uh, we shared the swimmer, did an ITO, and um, I mean, thankfully we didn't hurt him, we didn't kill ourselves, you know. Um, but man, what a lesson, you know, that I pushed the weather, and I didn't see the fact that we needed to get to lower risk in any point I could not just to hang out there in the fog yeah I got, I got more if you need them <laughs> <laughs> I had one uh in I think it's probably the first year I was here and I was flying uh at night with a student we we're doing uh, some approaches down to the water and I was the only one who caught the mistake that I made and uh simulated a cloud deck maybe 200 feet and doing an ITO and then gave uh, like a main gearbox failure imminent or, or a firelight, I can't remember which one it was. And so the student's working through the EP while I'm still trying to manage the student and uh, make sure that they're doing the correct thing while flying because I'm on controls to let them uh, work through this EP. And I descended down to, I think, about 70 feet, 70 feet over the water before I actually, uh, you know, found out what I was doing. I was, I was probably at 70, 80 knots and it was and, on purpose? And well, no. My descent was <laughs> You not just on said purpose. that was simulated. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what that's the thing. Nobody caught it except for me. And then I came back up and I was like, all right, maybe this isn't the best idea. And uh thought a lot about like, hey, I need to actually maybe discuss this with the flight mech beforehand before I go flying and um just think about who the person is in the other seat and where they are at in terms of uh just knowing where the aircraft is and, and recognizing what's going on because depending on the level of that person, you could be out there by yourself. Initiate an EP that might be really good for training, you know, going out hoisting, like obviously that was really good for his training, but you get to a point where you're just like, shoot, it's just me and it's just me. Like, how am I going to get myself out of here? So I, That's a great point that, again, I keep jumping in here, but I used to, for night water flights, I would I would just know inside, like, hey, I'm going to make some bad decisions, you know what I mean, and, and see if this co-pilot catches me. You know, and then I, I realized, you know, I don't have, I'm, I'm doing that by myself and I have no backup from the swimmer, from the flight mech. Mm -hmm. So then I started just grabbing the swimmer and the flight mech aside and saying, hey, I'm going to do these three or four things just so you're aware, you know, um, and if you catch me on it, feel free to call it out or, or, you know, or let me go. But, but, you know, just like in your head, just know what I'm doing so we don't end up in the water because mm -hmm. I had a couple of those where the flight, nobody called me on it. We got down to 30 feet at night. You know, and I knew what I was doing, but the, the flight mech never said anything and the, the co-pilot did. So now I, I say it in front of the co-pilot too. Hey, I'm going to go do these five things to you tonight. Yeah. And I find that they still are so behind the aircraft sometimes that, that it doesn't matter. They are like, they're missing it, but at least I've got a full team to back me up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I make a similar brief at the, uh, at the units, just tell the flight mech and swimmer like, Hey, if you're uncomfortable, just just do like you normally would and say you're uncomfortable. Don't give me some sort of like professional courtesy because I'm an instructor or whatever. I, I, I can make tons of bad decisions and I, I have a bunch of times. Uh, I remember I was probably like a machoism or something, but remember I was at San Francisco. It was like my seventh or eighth stand visit, feeling pretty good, doing like a FP advanced SAR day flight. Like pretty easy. I got this. No problem. Not my AOR, um, but I got this. Um, 
not used to hoisting uh, with that much terrain uh, that affects the wind and not that much current where your position moves uh, significantly over the course of 30 minutes of doing swimmers. And I remember the um, the other pilot was uh, Blake Morris, who's here now. And he was like, ah, I think we should maybe like reposition before we get too close to these hills from the current. And I was like, ah, we're good. Just let's finish this up and get your first pilot flight, uh, advance our flight done and, and get back home. And uh, yeah, I definitely made the wrong call. And we had a, a pretty good over torque uh, and recovered and came back home. But um, yeah, it, it was interesting. I had a, a guy next to me. I thought I was doing a pretty good job as the uh, as the IP, trying to manage the flight, get the flight mech sand check done, the swimmer sand check get his stuff done and, and manage time. But no, he had a good idea, and I just totally dismissed it for, for some reason, maybe machoism or, or whatever. But uh, it, like we were saying earlier, uh, I think you always have time to learn, even even as an IP. And the crew. I mean, I, I've definitely had the crew. You know, they sit back there and they watch these checklists every day that I do them. So I feel like I have a lot of memory and, and a lot of experience flipping switches and stuff like that. They have just as many. And there was a time one of my swimmer chiefs sat back there and, and pointed something out. And I immediately discounted it. Like, no, no, I think that's... But I'm like, no, he sees this every single day. And he's going to know when something's not right. And sure enough, something was not right. And I just missed it. You know? And I've seen I've seen other pilots do that, too. I had a pilot that discounted the fact that I, he missed the fact that I turned both alternators off in the start checks and I was waiting to see when he would actually notice. And the flight Mac was, this is back in the Charlie days, so the OADS was spinning. And most people in the podcast are like, what's OADS? But uh, <laughs> the flight Mac's like, hey, sir, the OADS isn't spinning. And the pilot's like, oh, it's okay. It'll turn, it'll come on when we turn on avionics or some ridiculous answer, you know? And I'm like, hey, this guy just gave you a huge clue that something's not right here. He stands out of that rotor arc a lot more than you do. And he's saying something's not right here. And just to pay attention to those clues, you know? And share those clues too. I think one of my, uh, uh, one of one another enjoyable story that I tell on myself is that I was at a North Bend on a stand visit and we were doing a SAR check. And so we were getting to the swimmer. So we were just in the first swimmer deployment. And you guys know we're trying to do three check rides all at once a SAR check, flight mission stand check, and the rescue swimmer stand check. Every every gallon of gas is is, uh, is priceless. So we were, we're there and um, uh, in the hover. I'm looking at the the fuel load and it's nine percent and nine percent. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I'm over there doing math, you know, like just trying to sharpen that pencil, making sure we're going to pull this all off. And all of a sudden, uh, the fuel gauge goes up to ten percent and then back down to nine percent on the on the number one engine. You're making gas. That's what I, I was. Do. I was like, yeah. And, and again, I'm, I'm and rat, the crew is 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 just humming along, and I'm I'm just over there and I'm thinking, man, I've never seen that before. And again, why would I not share that? But again, I think there was just that piece of that. Well, maybe I, you know, you just you just discount yourself. You know, like, did I really see that? Did I really see that? Or maybe that is normal. Maybe I've just never. And so I'm over there justifying the whole thing in my head. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, it, maybe we just kind of in the hover, we just maybe nosed up a little bit, and and then it went back down. So we were right on the edge. And I'm just again, maybe you tap the brakes. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's <laughs> in the hover somehow. Yeah, yep. and, and again, I'm just, I I really about the time I've like made my piece with like yeah it that probably happens I'm just not you know not astute enough to ever really catch it and today was my day you know and and about the time I said that it goes thirteen four zero and I was like well okay okay now we've got it but again same thing though like I then like you know uh, took way too much of a lead like we were there in a hover we were safe and I said hey guys real quick you know we, you know got to got to knock it off you know and again we didn't have to. Um, if you, if you follow the EP, you got to reach some circuit breakers that I, I can't reach with my little arms, but, uh, there's a pair of circuit breakers to pull and we could actually just plan flight to land above the, above, you know, it, it's a, you just keep a fuel log and we could have kept on with the mission, but I was so unnerved by that happening that I kind of just said, Hey, I think, Hey, we're done, you know, or said something silly like that. And, uh, so we did part three, we transitioned forward, we flew home and everything. But again, it, 
that that part of it, I, I did not allow the crew to one make the observation with me or make the decision. You know, as, as a crew, I kind of really just uh, uh, didn't didn't use all my resources. Just like that flight mech that said, "Hey, I think something's not quite right." So, mm. I'm glad you brought up the fuel thing. I know this is kind of taken from hijacking this, but I feel like the difference between flying with a 60 crew and a 65 crew is so different because of something as simple as fuel, Huge. right? So. Um, I got a couple of day land flights with them and, and they came back after doing, you know, what I would have considered the first 10 minutes of a day land flight, they were done. And I was like, really, all we're going to do is normal approaches and steep approaches. And the IP demoed a running landing. And I was like, that's it. Like that again, that is literally 15 minutes of a day land one with a 65. But, uh, what I realized was they're not, they're not focused on the fuel gauge. They're able to focus on good training. And they realized, hey, we've accomplished the mission. And that was what we wanted to get done on this flight. And it totally changed how I looked at how we trained the 65. And again, it's a lot of community norms. I'm very proud of our community. I think we do a lot of things. I think we we are on our own worst enemy, however, when we look at how we train. And so like our day land series is three of the same flight. And you may do every single thing three times, three different days. Mm-hmm. And that's how I was raised is that we're going to do autos on the first day. We're going to do single engines, min speeds, all that stuff, AFCS off. I, I literally, we have a student that has literally hovered this plane for about 30 seconds. And now we're going to, you know, single them up and give them a hoagie. Like, and I watch IPs when I came back here now, you know, after being here the first time from 06 to, for, to 10, I watched an IP try on, again, my second IUT here to watch him train a hoagie maneuver with a student that was not getting it. And I'm like, why are we doing this with, with this guy on Dayland to the 60s would only be doing like, you know, running landings today. You know, and so it just, it changed my mindset of how we train. And again, I don't think we need to be like the 60s per se, but something as simple as fuel is something we control, right? We, we know within our capacity, we're going to be able to do two hours of training, right? Give or take. Um, and so we, though, have this list and we're like, we're going to get through all of it, you know? And I, I know I'm, I'm the same way. Like, we have that pride that, you know, being macho, like, hey, I'm going to get all this done because I'm an excellent IP. Well, maybe the Coast Guard just didn't give me the tools I need to do to do all these things. You know, I'm going to fly 20 miles, you know, to the boat station. I got two swimmers, two flight mechs, you know, and of course, none of them are 200 pounds, you know, but I'm expected to get, there's just no way I manage those expectations. Like, hey guys, we're not going to be able to do this. We're going to get as much as we can. We're going to get good training. But yeah, if you screw up your match, we might have to do another match. That might mean three hoists, you know, so uh, that I that I now sacrifice. And I think if we were to look, change our outlook on that, um, and manage expectations. The problem is we, we succeed and then we get it done. And then it's like, that's the new high watermark is I can do anything, you know, with this aircraft. And I think there's a great, like we do a lot of amazing things with this aircraft. And I do think we are, we're better aviators because of it. But I also feel like we don't, we have 90% of our RAM is now tied up in managing fuel, power, and the timing of getting all these things done in the right order at the right time mm-hmm. that I'm not able to apply the RAM that those, the 60 crew can do. And and they can actually do some really great training and some really good IPing, if you will, you know, because they have that much more RAM to worry to work with, you know. Yeah, it seems that, like they yeah. train till they're proficient in a particular task rather than training till out it's time gas. to do the next task before you run out of gas. Right. And from right. the MOI perspective too, right? We want that law of primacy, and we want we want a person or a, we want a uh, a pilot to see what's normal enough to where they can then spot the abnormal. But we don't we don't do that. You get. One approach to hover, one approach to no hover, one one running landing. Okay, now we're going to do single engines, and so you've seen one of those, and now we're going to give you give it to you in a different way. So you're supposed to somehow spot the abnormality, like oh, you're slightly off profile this time. Oh, well, I only saw it once before, so right. how am I supposed to do that? And so, I think one we've done a phenomenal job here by really taking a better look at the end product and what we want. What do we want that co- 
that co-pilot that's standing duty on day one. What do we want them to look like and know and do? Mm-hmm. And most of that, if not all of it, happens in the left seat. And so we've shifted a lot of the T course to the left seat and made it more left seat centric. And, you know, how good do they need to be at flying a tail rotor? And, you know, we've had two tail rotors in our community, one in 87 and one in like 2004. And at neither time did the AC say to that brand new co-pilot, hey, you want this one? Yeah, you want this one? <laughs> Again, it's just, so we don't need them to be, we need to un- them to understand aero. We need them to be phenomenal uh, with the stick and the rudder or no, the uh, cyclic and the collective. But uh, at the same time, we also, we also need to understand where we need to get somebody. And they do need to be able to fly a phenomenal uh, approach dual engine. They need to be able to land in an LZ uh, with the best of them. But there are certain things that we don't need them to be great at day one. We need to have that primacy, that normalcy, like nailed down, so that the abnormal and the abstract are much come much easier when they're ready to absorb it. Yeah, I mean they're a great safety pilot for you flying your tail rotor or or your min speed to the rig, um, and then we leave it up to the unit IPs to get them the rest of the way for first pilot when they actually have to be good at it. You know, again, most pilots can do fine, but I, I, we found that by by focusing on the basics on day land one and two, hover work, normal stuff, slowly introducing some of the EPs in, they were so much better when I taught how to do a single engine now that you know when the basics are good the single engine was not hard you know yeah. but when you when the yeah. basics are crumbly you know you don't have those building blocks now that the advanced thing only just makes it that much worse yeah. and rusty sloan was one of my favorite ips that i flew with and i thought he had a great way to distill it when you're thinking about how to prepare guys for stuff is that he thought he said the first pilot syllabus is there so that you can handle everything the aircraft can throw at you and he said the aircraft commander syllabus is there so that you can handle everything the coast guard can throw at you and i thought those were two very good ways to it to attack it because I'm not going to give you complex missions or anything crazy and bad weather when, when you're a first pilot. But what I can't control in that risk equation is what that aircraft's going to spit out at you after level off checks. And so I have to know that you'll be able to handle that piece of it. So again, I think that, w- and when you, like I said, slice it up into those things, you can be a better IP to prepare the guy for what qual or designation that he or she is is uh, is trying to get. Do, do either of you think that uh, as a community, we have a hesitation to ask for that extra flight? Like, we need to get this all done with as much gas as possible and continue to progress. I mean, certainly here at, at Mobile, but maybe in the, in the fleet as well. Uh, I think so. I think one of the things we've challenged and had a really difficult time with in, in Mobile was with doing rescue swimmer work in the bay. And we were working in the middle of the bay, and then we worked in the south part of the bay. And that, that small transition from the middle to the south cost us a hoist. That was a, it, was a, it was a loss of one hoist. And again, 60 guys can chuckle at that, but that... That may have been the difference in finishing a flight or not for like a flight mech upgrade was that one last hoist. But then we still couldn't get the water quality pinned down enough to keep our swimmers healthy and safe. And so we moved offshore uh, and we've seen a, a marked increase in our swimmers health, but that cost us another hoist. So we're in a two hoist deficit from our normal operating area as uh, as uh, aviators here at the 65 community. And the question becomes, is that cost worth it, right? Because the loss of two hoist will absolutely make a flight mech upgrade flight now a two sortie event, you know? And is is that okay? Like like mm-hmm. you're saying, Sam, is that is that an acceptable level? Of, is that an acceptable cost? You know, and we're looking at different long term mitigations about fuel in different places that might help out uh, to quell some of that, or some better, some more uh, focused scheduling efforts on certain days. But beyond that, the um, yeah, the ability to finish. I mean, we're just we're Type A's, and again, you give me a card, I'm going to get the card done, right? And I think, like I said, we at times need to relieve ourselves of that and say we're not. We're not the asset to, to circle back to that SAR case that, that Jake Dorsey and I had. You know, we were in terrible weather, 40 miles offshore, 90 miles from home. The closest people point of land we had was, was a helipad at a boat station that was fogged in. Um, and we had six minutes to bingo to that spot, uh, to a 300-pound bingo, you know. And so I'm just beating myself up that we couldn't pull off the mission in the 47 
was able to get there. And, and I, you know, just like, you know, what have, what if that 47 wasn't able to get there? And the crew had so, such, such much better, um, a resolve about it. They said, well, we'd have gone back to the boat station. We'd have gotten gas and we'd have gone back out because this is the resource that we've been given by the organization. Like we, we were given a resource that, that can, that can fly for just a little over two hours, you know? And, uh, and that, that was good for me to hear. Um, especially on that day. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, I think managing those expectations, you know, is, is really my job to say, Hey, you know, don't, don't feel like, you know, I would much rather good training happen, you know, than, than just get the X. And I, and I think by, you know, it's hard because we, again, we're all type A. We want to get the X. Sam sets me up with a, he, he tees up a, and a great softball on me to be able to go do this day water flight with a student. He's, he's hoping I get that done so that the night water flight tomorrow night can happen. You know, but uh, sometimes by just managing expectations, like, hey, you know, this is going to be a challenge. You know, I got a struggling student. You know, the weather's not very good, and um, you know, we might not very get much, you know, get much done. But if we get, hey, if we we give it a shot, you know, and, and we'll just manage the expectation with the crew, like, hey, guys, we're probably not going to get this done, but uh, we'll just kind of take it as it comes and leave the bingo where it is. And, and when we hit the bingo, we can talk about lowering it, see if the conditions have changed. And um, but I think in our community, again, we, we definitely struggle on that. And again, it's something as physical as just a, the amount of fuel we have. And we can control that. It's like a budget. I was the richest kid in the seventh grade because I had a paper route and I had no bills. So I had all kinds of money. Um, and, and the same thing with tasks in the aircraft, right? If I have nothing to do except a couple of approaches to the water, man, I, I can, and I got two hours to do it. I could, I could do a 60 brief, you know what I mean? And, and talk the whole time. And so it just, it manages that. We just need to manage our own expectations better internally, you know? Um, and I would like to see us get rid of a few things like the instrument check right now. We're, we're trying to get that down to three, check, three, three approaches. Whenever would I need to go fly two? why would I need to fly two ILSs to show that I can do, you know, do one. So uh, again, it's just, you know, if we can look at the card and say, do I mean, it's amazing to me on an, on, on a stand check, I have to show you that I can land on an oil rig with, with one engine and I have to show you I can land on with a tail rotor. I've never had to do that for real, but I've had to land on a lot of elevated pads and a lot of confined areas. And those are, those are optional, mm -hmm. you know? So maybe we look at the cards and say, Hey, what, what do we want our pilots focusing this short about flight time on to be able to manage this effectively and get those extra reps? Like, Hey, I would benefit more from getting quality, um, you know, than, than just reps and I think the focus too, like if I reach, you know, we call it a reset in Port Angeles, you know, green, amber, red, oh man, I needed to hoist every 30 days. I need swimmers and boats. And then I'd be back at the back of the line. And I remember going out one night and having a really rough night. And I was like, I'm purposely not going to do swimmers tonight because I do not feel like I'm in the game. Mm -hmm. I'd rather come home red for swimmers, really focus on getting the boats where they need to be. And, and I'll just tell ops, Hey, I need another flight. You know, and it's hard to come back and be the guy, you know, when a briefing the CEO, oh, sandboard's red, he's 64 days from night swimmers, but but yeah, he did that because he needed the training, you know? So I'd, I'd rather focus on the quality versus the quantity. Can I throw one other thing out there too? You know, we talk about risk a lot. Um, I remember as a new co-pilot in Atlantic City, I did a couple of medevacs pretty early on, maybe six months after getting there and the weather sucked. We had to go offshore, shoot a letdown and, and find this boat, medevac a, a person and take him to a you know hospital pad. And I asked the aircraft commander who was Captain Sal Palmieri, you know, and he was Lieutenant Commander Sal Palmieri at the time. And I said, how... How do you manage risk? You know, when you look at this mission, you know, I mean, I can't get my co-pilot head wrapped around the fact that we're going to fly IFR to a point in space offshore, shoot a letdown at, you know, zero loom, and then hoist somebody off a scalloper, you know, like, and then take them to a hospital pad and a place I've never been. How do you manage that? And he said, I just break it into chunks. You know, I just, I take a slice like, Hey, can we take off? You know, yes, I can take off IFR. Okay. Uh, where are we going? Can I get there? 
yes, I have the fuel to get there. We may get on scene and realize, yep, it's not worth the risk. We're going to go home. Is that within your wheelhouse? Absolutely. Um, can I shoot an approach to water? Yes, we can do that. Let's take a look. We don't have to hoist. We're not committed to that. We go take a look at the boat and say, hey, does this make sense? Does this still worth the risk? What we're, you know, what, what, what we're risking is, is the gain worth it? And so that's how he did it. And I thought that was a great, because there's a lot of times we like, oh man, this sounds like a horrible case. It, it might be horrible, but you won't know until you get on scene, right? So all we know is we know what sector is telling us and, and you're getting all your information from a, the poor OS that is literally managing this case with a, in a room with no windows. And he is literally getting this, he or she from the radio, from some mariner or from the flight surgeon recommending things. And until we get on scene and see what we're dealing with, we really don't know. So when, when you get on scene now, you know more than everybody and you can make that decision and, and just don't feel like, hey, we came here to get someone off this boat. That's what we're going to do because that's how mishaps happen. But to say, hey, maybe we, we'll just take it one step, one decision at a time, you know, and, and, and that's how the whole thing, you know, ends in, in, in totality. I don't have to take them to the helipad. I can just take them to the airport and get an ambulance to meet me, you know. So that's another way we can reduce risk. But again, make that decision as it's happening. Swimmer might say, hey, this person needs a hospital right now. Uh, I had a case on my first duty in Houston where uh, the swimmer, you know, we go out to do a medevac and the hospital that we thought we were going to, um, you know, was, was this other hospital? And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I want to go there. I've never been there on the fam flight. And so we're like, Hey, we'd like to go over here. But the swimmer got the patient on board and said, no, we have to go to the nearest hospital, which was the original hospital. And, um, again, you're just making those decisions on the fly, but you're continually doing that based on the input from the crew. So, and that's, uh, again, this probably happened before you guys, uh, uh, were flying, but that was in addition to the rescue brief, uh, was that line item of survivor's condition because, we didn't have crews chunking out the mission into those pieces. And so you'd launch for a medevac, you'd get out there and the inertia of we're doing a medevac, we're going to hoist somebody is, is essentially, um, ops expects me to come home with somebody. I, I, yeah, I, yes. Mm. Yeah. There better be a, better be a survivor in there because this was a medevac, but we then tried to build in that last little, like one more chunk survivor's condition. Like, Hey, we're here. Are things as bad as we, we thought when we got here? One of the problems with that is that we say that every time, for every rescue brief when we go out and do a uh, training flight. And so sometimes we it glosses over it. Um, even one or four checklists before that, we used to have the same exact checklist to take off from a ship as we did from a, uh, just from, in, from all take, all takeoffs had the exact same checklist because every 65 pilot used to, used to deploy to a ship. And so literally it was, was it center, yeah. center, center panel, then Talon? Something or like that. It was, yeah. yeah. But right there before we took off, it was either Talon, center instrument panel or center instrument panel Talon. It was like, chunk chunk and then you'd go but again 99 percent of the time you were taken off the talent was not required and so you would you just talent not required and you'd pull pitch and go what that resulted in was again guys would be on the cutter and they would do center panel talent and they would gloss pie and they would try to pull power and so we tried to divert rep a few 210s is what uh, is the story that i got told is that we tried to take off with the talent still engaged and couldn't quite pick the 210 up out of the water and so we'd over torque on deck but uh so that was again moi people and and PSD folks said, well, you really, this is, these are two different things, have two different, recognize that and have two different checklists. So again, I'd, I'm not saying that we need a rescue check for training and a rescue check for operational, but if we didn't, if we actually take that survivor's condition as a like, hey, let's do, this is, this is a, this is a flag that we've planted as a community that said, revisit your ORM equation right here. And again, that might be a be even a better way to say it, to be honest, that might, might be fit in the training environment and in the operational environment is. They wanted you to get out there and say, hey, how is that survivor doing? Are they good, bad, and different to what you thought when you showed up? 
Yeah. What's what's our mission? Is our mission to bring him home, or is our mission to make him better? Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe that maybe the right answer is you deploy a swimmer, and the swimmer escorts that boat back, and you go home without a swimmer. You know, and maybe that's the best answer for the condition of the patient, the the totality of it. it's now nighttime in a gale, you know, and and they, these conditions exceed my abilities or the flight max abilities, and um, yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And I think yeah. that yeah, and, and uh, I I one ops boss I had one time talked about he never. He never wanted to intentionally downgrade the level of care that, that someone was getting, you know, and so there are pieces of that. Um, you know, you think about like that cruise ship medevac, right? There, what's, what's on a cruise ship? There's typically some sort of medical care and a nurse, you know, and so by taking them onto a Coast Guard helicopter to go somewhere, that transit is going to lower their, their level of care unless you're bringing that nurse with you or something like that. Sometimes that makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they're in a stable spot with medical care, we need to leave them there. And so those are those great conversations with the flight surgeon, but then also, like I said, that, that we need to engage with there. And, and so we even did several uh, patient transports in Port Angeles where uh, the uh, Airlift Northwest was the, uh, was the was a civil medevac company, and they flew with uh, ICU, ICU nurses. Um, and so what you could do is you could go get the person off of the, the cruise ship and Airlift Northwest would preposition to the air station, and you would then just do a quick patient transfer. So then that transit all the way back to Seattle, which was another 45 minutes of flight time. Mm-hmm. One, it saved you the gas, which you were thrilled about. But two, they got in a they got in a helicopter with an ICU nurse that could push meds, that could pump oxygen, that could do all of those things. And so that 45 minute transit to that trauma trauma center that they needed to get to was far far less risky for that person as well. So yeah. You know, as you were saying that, I thought of a case I had in Port Angeles. Guy fell off a cliff chasing his dog, and the dog stopped. The guy didn't stop, and so he fell about a hundred feet. To, you know, through some trees to the to the you know rocks below, and the swimmer took one look at him, and uh, he's like, "You don't need me. You need a you need a paramedic." And he handed the paramedic his helmet, and we took the paramedic. We left the swimmer on the beach, and we took the guy, flew him to Harborview Hospital, and we got our swimmer later that day. But I think just thinking outside the box, like, "Hey, that's a possible solution." You know, maybe I don't if fuel is an issue, maybe. And I know I'm going to land on a pad. Maybe we just leave the flight mech behind, let the swimmer be the, the BA and, and, and work the, uh, be able to work the transit that way so we can bring a doc and a, and a nurse. Um, you know, another thing I thought about that is, uh, you know, in, in Port Angeles, so many times we went out to hoist with Station Bellingham and the weather would come in on us and it would suck. You'd, you'd refuel in Bellingham and you'd call to see what the weather was at home. And like, yeah, it's real foggy. So what do we do? We take extra gas so we can shoot three NDBs and not break out. Well, you know, the CO would be like, well, why don't you just get a hotel in Bellingham? You know, you can stand the ready from anywhere. Why do we have to, like, we feel this pressure to get to our, you know, get home so I can sleep in my bed and eat my ravioli. You know, like we can, we can stand ready from anywhere. And so that was something I tried to take to Houston and say, if we got a, you know, a case first light somewhere, you you, you don't find, you know, on the flare search and you have a penalty first light in the morning, spend the night out in Lake Charles, get a hotel and we'll fly you from there, you know, or you've just had a great medevac. It's three in the morning. Just get a hotel, you know, and you can come back tomorrow after you've eight, eight hours of sleep. You've done the mission. The mission's great. The adrenaline's going to wear off. I don't want that adrenaline to wear off 20 minutes from home plate when you forget to put the gear down, you know. And that's only as powerful as actually doing it. I think that was the thing. We, we actually did that at Bellingham one time. It was both. It was we were the ready and then the non-ready went as well uh, to hoist. And same thing. We uh, we'd coordinated a, a call. We said, hey, we told we told uh watch tender call sector at this time with with the weather and then we'll ask sector what the weather is and got done both of us were done with our flight makeup grades or hoist or whatever and hey sector how's the weather watch tender says weather is zero zero like, <laughs> all right well that's easy so we landed at bellingham call actually and the weather is just as bad or worse and so yeah we stood the ready from that from the hampton inn right there that was right there at the airport property but again you have to do that right like the whole thing like hey it's fine to recover somewhere else like 
until you're actually doing it, um, that's when a wardroom believes it, you know? So, yeah, a good way to buy down risk and with that safe, aggressive training culture too, you know, having those conversations. I, th I think about one case that I had uh, with a DIW um, boat at night offshore and we got there. We didn't know how, what the guy's condition was. The whole fantail of the boat was covered in a uh, an awning with a, a ladder that went right down the middle of it. So we put the swimmer down in the awning, and the next thing we know, we saw the swimmer walking out with the other two crew members carrying the guy, you know, like a sack of potatoes. And the only other place to do it was to the bow of the ship, which had a 25-foot mast. And here I am doing my first bow uh, ship DIW uh, recovery of a swimmer with an, a big obstacle. You know, I, I certainly wish I had practiced that uh, when I had the opportunity during the daytime on Motor Vessel Solomon or the 45 or whatever. It would have been really helpful. Um, and, and I find that interesting, like with you guys talking about, you know, taking the paramedic instead of the swimmer or, you know, changing, changing up what the norm is. I, that's, a, that's such an important thing to do on a regular basis to be able to buy down that risk and just to have that conversation. I mean, you don't even need to go out and fly it. You just need to go talk about it. Like, what are you going to do if... Kind of thing. We had some great swimmers in Houston that would just, you know, we'd, we'd have some transit time and I, you know, he'd say, Hey, what would you do if you would put me down and I got bitten by a shark and I'm, I got nothing below the knee. What are you going to do flight Mac to, to save my life? You know, we would talk about that and route to the station that was 20 minutes away or, yeah. you know, what would you do if we had this EP right now, you know, and get the whole crew involved in that. And not just like, like these are the things that, again, I, I, that I'm so thrilled about Ryan doing this podcast is like, We've got these stories that, that, you know, now someone might remember, hey, on this podcast, I heard a story about Sam doing a bow hoist or Scott leaving leaving the swimmer to take a paramedic instead. You know, like we've empowered people at least with, with the, the idea that this is possible, right? This is now tools in their tool belt, all from just hearing these stories, right? This is this is the ORM piece that we're achieving just through a podcast is that uh, now some crews can be like, yeah, uh, tomorrow we're going to go practice hoisting to the bow of this boat. We're not going to do anything but tag the bow of this boat with the trail line. We're going to get in position and see what this looks like in case there is nothing on the back end. Again, I think every AOR has a has a fishing boat that they can tell me tell me about right now that hoisting to the stern is not an option, you know, for whatever reason. And so, yeah, how would you get to the bow of that boat? Yeah, for anybody out there with an FRC in their AOR, go hoist to that. It's a good one because they're all covered in the back. You